Welcome back to Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life. As we move into this next section of the argument of Galatians, I wanted to take a short time out just to explain some very key contextual details. Now, I'll try to um, leave out as much of the you know, needless technical language as possible, but I think it's really, really important to understand some of the key contextual grounding for why Paul has framed his argument in the way he has done. Now, I can't see into the mind of Paul, no one can. All we can do is look at the letters that he's written and kind of work backwards and ask ourselves well, what influenced Paul to argue the way that he did. Now, in any of Paul's work, it's always important to think about the key contextual influences in his life. Now, Paul was influenced by a number of things. He was influenced by his upbringing as a Jew, particularly as a Pharisee. He was influenced by Greek philosophy, which was the prevalent um, thought form of his day. He was, I suppose, to some degree at least, influenced by the teaching of Jesus. Now, there's no reason to think that Paul was particularly cognizant of the teaching of Jesus. He hardly ever quotes anything from Jesus and was far more interested in the risen Messiah, Jesus. If I had to guess or gamble which of these influences affected Paul the most, I would probably argue that it was his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish background, his knowledge and understanding of the law of Moses and his training as a Pharisee. That's not something I can necessarily demonstrate with any degree of precision. However, reading his letters, there are a few key pointers and reading particularly Galatians, there are two pointers which suggests that he did take a particular view of history and a particular context for understanding uh, the way that God's work was unfolding. In the next podcast, we will look at Galatians 3, 10 through 13. Some key passages where Paul quotes a lot from the Hebrew Bible in order to drive the argument of Galatians forward. It's often referred to as the scriptural part of the argument. The two pointers that I think are clear here are number one, the citations of uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and secondly, the prevalent use of death and life imagery. Putting those two things together makes me and I'm certainly not the only person who who believes this, think that Paul was what we often refer to as a Deuteronomistic thinker. Now, if that sounds like it's come from the word Deuteronomy, well, yep, there is a good reason for that. I don't want to go into too many of the details, but I do want to suggest what a Deuteronomistic thinker was. And this was someone who took a very particular view of how Israel's history was unfolding. And you don't have to look very far to see it. A number of scholars have argued that there are six basic elements of what it means to be a Deuteronomistic thinker. Number one, that Israel's entire history had been one of disobedience. Number two, that God had constantly sent prophets to Israel to try to encourage them to repent of their disobedience. 
Thirdly, that Israel constantly rejected the prophets, maltreated the prophets, and even killed the prophets. Fourthly, that God was naturally furious at their rejection of the prophets, and as a result, as a punishment, sent them into exile, into exile um, in pagan lands. Fifthly, that during exile, even in when they were in the pit, Israel still had the opportunity to repent. And finally, if indeed Israel did repent, they would be restored to their land and they would enjoy once more the blessings of walking with God. This theme runs throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. It's seen all over the place. And one of the places it's seen, of course, most profoundly is the time when Israel's rebellion and idolatry and corruption in the priesthood and in the leadership led to the people being led into exile in Babylon. This happened in the 6th century before the Common Era. Let me read to you a few passages from Deuteronomy 30. The last few chapters of Deuteronomy are where Moses spells out very clearly this precise scheme. That people, if they held to the law, would enjoy a great relationship with God. But that if they rebelled and were disobedient and didn't listen to the prophets and maltreated the prophets, um, that God would be furious, they would go into exile. But that even in exile, if they just turned and repented, that they would be restored geographically to their homelands, restored spiritually and reconnected with God and again enjoy the blessings of walking with God. Well, when Moses describes this scheme in the closing chapters of Deuteronomy, he describes the punishment of exile as death. And the restoration from exile, he describes as life. Now, just think for a moment about Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. These dead, dry bones was a picture of Israel in exile. And what was the portrait of Israel being restored from exile and rescued from exile? It was these dead bones coming to life by the power of the Spirit. So we see this motif not only in Deuteronomy, but throughout the Bible. Death representing uh, the curse of exile and life representing the blessing of restoration. Well, this is what the author writes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you among all the nations where the Lord your God shall banish you, you shall bring these things back to your heart. Then down in verse 15, he writes, Behold, I have set before you today life and good death and evil. Then again in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that you may live, you and your seed. The author of Deuteronomy himself describes exile and estrangement from God as death 
and restoration from that as life. Paul never mentions exile, but he does mention curse. And in fact, as we'll see in the next episode, curse language is a very important part of this section of the argument. Paul clearly agrees with the author of Deuteronomy and other Deuteronomistic thinkers in Israel's history. Only I think this much is true. For Paul, death is the ultimate curse. It's represented by exile in in Deuteronomy. And there are many who believe, and probably one of the chief proponents of this is Tom Wright, but many who believe that Israel had a sense of continuing exile even after they'd been Uh, geographically relocated back to the homelands after the exile. So when the exile was over and they were restored to to Israel and they rebuilt the temple and everything, they still were the subjugates of pagans. Okay, so the Babylonians had gone and now the Persians had come and then um, the Greeks would come and then the Romans would come and they were still living under pagan rule and the glorious days of God's divine intervention spoken of by the prophets had not been realized yet. And so there was still this sort of continuing sense of spiritual exile, of of a continuing exile in the hearts and minds of the people, even though they had been physically and geographically restored to their homelands. And so even though Paul doesn't mention exile, If he indeed was one of these Jewish thinkers who did think that the exile continued spiritually, even though it had ended physically, for Paul, the ultimate curse was not exile, but death. So even though Paul never mentions exile, he does mention death several times and talks about um, being in the sort of deadness of sin. And of course, Paul talks about life. And so for Paul, life and death really are his way of talking about what the prophets referred to in terms of exile and restoration from exile. But I think the following is true. For Paul, the true release from exile, the true freedom from captivity was not to be freed from Babylon and back into Israel or from Assyria and back into Israel, or even to in some sense be freed from the um, overlordship of Rome. The true freedom from captivity that Paul tries to emphasize is freedom from the captivity of sin. All people are estranged from God. They're in exile from God because of sin. And so to be truly free, to be truly restored from captivity, to be truly liberated from exile, to truly move from the death of exile to the life of restoration is to be in Christ. The true restoration is not geographical, but it's Christological. That means it has to do with Christ. Being in Christ for Paul is the true freedom. And why is it a movement from death to life? Well, because that's how Jesus himself was freed. 
He was killed and yet overcame death with resurrection life. And for Paul, anyone who is in Christ also has moved from death to life. That's what it means to be justified and that's what it means to ultimately be free. I want you to to keep these thoughts in mind as we go into the scriptural section of Galatians next time. These thoughts are invaluable, I think, for understanding Galatians 3, 10 through 13 and the Old Testament quotes that Paul uh, uh, uses in, in that section of the text. And I think it's also very useful for us to spend some time just meditating on freedom. If there is one motif that unites all of humanity, something that humanity has always wanted to be, it's free. People want to be free physically, they want to be free emotionally, they want to be free mentally. Nobody wants to be enslaved, nobody wants to be held down or held captive or put in any kind of chains or a straitjacket. They want to be able to express themselves to feel the true freedom. Sometimes I think in our world people think that freedom comes from all sorts of places and it's sad sometimes that people genuinely think they're free when they're not. Freedom is not just the ability to do whatever you like. Freedom is to not be shackled. Now some people do what they like and yet they are shackled. They can't give certain things up. They're controlled by things which, um, you know, material things. Things have a hold on people which they can't let go of. Well, that could never be true freedom. True freedom isn't just doing whatever you like. True freedom is being able to fully be who God intended you to be. True freedom is to be able to completely self-actualize and to not feel constrained by anything, whether it's even something like pleasure. Pleasure often constrains people. And, um, you know, people seek pleasures in all sorts of uh, pursuits. But to be truly free is to not have any masters. It's not to have to bow down to anything, not to bow down to any person, not to bow down to a pastime, a drug, a controlling influence of any kind. That's true freedom. And very few people, I think, genuinely experience that. Paul was convinced that you only truly experienced his freedom in Christ. And it's that very freedom that he's trying to convey to the Galatian Gentiles.